The following sermon by our guest speaker is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. How many of you saw the film Amazing Grace about William Wilberforce? Okay, excellent. When it came to William Wilberforce, that film was spot on historically and mostly theologically. But when it came to my hero, John Newton, the film was an abysmal failure. You may recall that Newton is dressed um, kind of in burlapy clothes and he's mopping the floor of a cathedral and he's a guilt-ridden man uh, with deep remorse over the supposedly tens of thousands of slaves that he was involved in transporting from Africa to the colonies. And um, that, that part is not accurate. And I think I, I want to put... I want to put Newton's own words in your ears tonight so you'll understand he indeed was a wicked man and had been for a short time involved in the slave trade, Uh, but it's certainly an exaggeration to say it was tens of thousands, and it's certainly a gross misunderstanding of how grace works um, for Hollywood to depict him as filled with remorse and regret. He was a forgiven, humble, robust, joyful believer. And when you hear how he talks tonight in his own words through his hymns and other things that I'll read to you from his autobiography, I hope you'll understand better that he really did find the grace of God astonishingly amazing. So so if you have that picture in your mind, I want to erase that for you tonight. So Amazing Grace, the hymn that, one of the hymns that he wrote is the most recorded song in recorded music history. Isn't that interesting? It's not a Michael Jackson song. It's not a Beatles tune. Uh, the song Amazing Grace has been recorded more times than any other song. That certainly doesn't mean that everyone who recorded it has any clue what grace is or why it's amazing, but it is rather humorous that God would take some uh, a man whose first song was actually a song that he taught to other sailors to make fun of the captain of their ship and say, you know what, I think I'm going to save this foul-mouthed infidel and make him write mm, the, the best-known English hymn all, uh, you know, of all time. So uh, the Lord just plucked him out as a trophy of his grace, and and I want your hearts to rejoice in what what God has done through his life. Newton didn't leave behind a a systematic theology or a a tome of anything. What we have left over from Newton is the residue of a faithful pastoral ministry. This was a a, a man, an ordinary man, who wanted to serve the Lord, and what he left behind is our reams of letters which read like you're sort of overhearing pastoral counseling. Um, sermons that are filled with passion and fire and individualized for those unique congregations, and of course, these, uh, these wonderful hymns that we'll look at tonight. So hymns and letters and sermons, uh, never intending to be, I think he'd be shocked to know that some guy named Todd Murray is still talking about his ministry uh, some 200 plus years after his death. He died in 1807. So, But he's just been a faithful companion to me. So I don't sit before you as a scholar. I sit before you as a pastor who's been encouraged uh, by uh, a dead pastor. And uh, so I want to introduce you tonight to my favorite dead friend. So so the caricature that you got in the movie, I'm sorry, erase that and, and let Newton represent himself tonight. What I want to do tonight is look at his life in three chapters, uh, and I'll weave some music into each of these. And let's see, am I doing this backwards? Thank you. Three chapters. We'll look at him as the rebellious sailor. That'll bring us up to his conversion. Then in the next chapter, we'll look at him as the country curate, where he will uh, enter his first part of his ministry in a small village of Olney. And then thirdly, we'll look at his life as the reluctant celebrity after 
uh, 16 years in a small village of illiterate people, like I mentioned this morning. He went to London and was there for 28 years until his death. And, and there he was, had become a well-known guy and was really never comfortable with, uh, with being a famous man. So let's look first at this first chapter of his life, Newton the Rebellious Sailor. And this takes us from, uh, from his birth into his 20s. So John Newton was born in London in 1725. His mother was a believer and uh, by age four, she was already teaching him the shorter catechism. She had taught him, um, Isaac Watts wrote a, a group of children's hymns called Divine and Moral Songs for Children. He said uh, by age six, he had learned uh, large sections of the Bible by memory. So he was a bright young man, and she was a faithful mother. Uh, her husband, however, was not a believer. So John Newton's father, I'll refer to him as Captain Newton. Captain Newton was, uh, was an unbeliever and had a distant, and, um, a distant relationship with John. He's, John says about his father, I was always overawed by him. He, he, just, uh, he said, I'm convinced that he loved me, though he seemed reluctant to show it. So his dad was gone an awful lot of the time. His father was a merchant sailor, so not a military man, but a merchant sailor. And sailed from the Thames River, and they lived just a few blocks off the River Thames there. That's a picture of it in London, about 1725. And um, so his father was gone quite a bit. While his father was away in the Mediterranean at one point, uh, his mother uh, became ill and got so ill that the doctor suggested she go out to the country. And so some, actually a distant relative and a dear friend, the Catlett family took in his mother, and while she was away, she died and so Newton was in London. I still don't know, haven't been able to track down who was he staying with. His mother was away, hoping to convalesce, and actually passed away. And his father was away. So this had to be difficult days. It was shortly before his seventh birthday. Newton says in his autobiography that with the death of his mother, quote, thus ended my happy childhood. Uh, after that, his father sent him to a boarding school where this very bright boy did very poorly in uh, a difficult boarding school. And eventually his father said, uh, if you're not going to be a good student, then I'll just take you and teach you my trade as a sailor. And so he began to travel with his father. This is not his father's ship, but his father's ship was like this one. It's called a snow because of how many sails are on it. So he was merchant sailing with his father on a sail, a sail ship called a snow. And there he says... Uh, I took my meals with my father in the captain's quarters. I slept with my father in the captain's quarters. But during the day, I had free reign of the ship. And he said, I learned to sin in two ways, one from the sailors and the other from a book, which would have been the media of his day that he picked up in Spain. It was a book in English uh, written by a deist. And he said that that book worked like a slow poison in his mind to erode all the Christian uh, principles and the faith that his mother uh, had impressed upon me. Newton says this about these these years while he's on board uh, the ship with his father. He says, I think I took up and laid aside a religious profession three or four different times before I was yet 16 years of age. But all this while, my heart was insincere. I often saw a necessity of religion as a means of escaping hell, but I loved sin and was unwilling to forsake it. I was so strangely blind and stupid that sometimes when I'd been determined upon things which I knew were sinful and contrary to my duty, I could not go on quietly till I had first dispatched my ordinary task of prayer in which I grudged every moment of my time. And when this was finished, my conscience would be in some measure pacified and I would rush into folly with little remorse. My delight and habitual practice was wickedness. 
young people especially, do you hear what Newton is saying? Before he was 16 years of age, he began this cycle of um, sinning and then running to God and seeking forgiveness and making a profession of faith and then falling even deeper into sin and then running back to God and repenting supposedly and making another profession of faith and then falling even deeper into sin. To read Newton's life into his early 20s is just to read a, this, this constant undulation, cycling back and forth between more and more religious fervor and followed by deeper and deeper plunges into sin and then even higher religious fervor and more and more plunges into sin. Also, please notice, not just young people, but adults, this kind of transparency that you're going to see throughout the night where he says, I loved my sin. I remember as a parent, when it hit me when my firstborn, who's uh, uh, now married and 25 years old, but it hit me in high school that, you know what, I can tell you everything there is to know about Jesus, but I cannot make you love him. And I can warn you of all the wickedness about sin, but I cannot make you hate sin. That when it comes to the affections of the heart, that only God can do that work. And Newton is a great example of that. And you've probably heard the old saying that sin will take you further than you want to go, cost you more than you will want to pay, and keep you for longer than you will want to stay. And Newton's life is certainly an example of that. The Bible says the way of the transgressor is hard. So let me tell you a little bit more about how, how difficult Newton's life became. There are two things you have to understand. Um, sorry, I intended there to be a black slide there. So can we go to black for a second? Because that'll just sort of be distracting for a moment. Thank you, brother. Um, two things you have to understand or you don't understand this chapter of Newton's life. One is that Newton, uh, you need to understand how sinful he was. Uh, that he was basically a juvenile delinquent that you would have just said to yourself, there's no way he'll ever be saved. The second thing you have to understand is that at age 17, he fell head over heels in love with the 14-year-old daughter of the family who took care of his mother when she was dying. Turns out that Mrs. Newton and her distant relative and dear friend Elizabeth Catlett, that they had actually prayed together that their two kids would get married uh, Mrs. Newton had prayed that John would become a preacher, though she would not live to see either of those things happen. They, both her prayers were answered. So kids, be careful what your mama's praying for you. And mothers, fathers, grandparents, don't ever stop praying because you don't know what the Lord's going to do even after you pass off the scene. So um, he says about the first time he met Polly, he says this, I was impressed with an affection for her which never abated or lost its influence in my heart from that hour. I soon lost all sense of religion and became deaf to remonstrances of conscience and prudence, but my regard for her was always the same, and I may perhaps venture to say that none of the scenes of misery and wickedness I afterwards experienced ever banished her a single hour from my waking thoughts through all the following years. You want to talk about what make a great movie, it's this life. You've got undying romance swashbuckling sea adventure, which we'll get to in just a moment, and great spiritual transformation. And I am encouraged to tell you that the people who did the William Wilberforce movie actually intended to do a Newton movie first and couldn't find, still haven't found anybody to write a script. And if I knew how to write a script, I'd write a script, but all I know how to do is what I'm doing tonight. So we're sort of stuck. But he fell in love with her at 14, and uh, that love never, never faded away. So if you don't understand those two things, you don't get Newton's childhood, just how wicked he became after his mother's death, and just how desperately, hopelessly, he was infatuated with this young lady. I have a 14-year-old daughter, 
And if some 17-year-old derelict like Newton walked into my house, I can tell you how it would go. And I can assure you they'd never be married. So So, um, following meeting Polly, uh, Elizabeth was really her name. Her nickname was Polly, and he called her Polly throughout his life. So Polly Newton is the flame of his heart who would later become his wife. Um, how, how does a guy who's this messed up come to Christ? And of course, that, that is a fascinating adventure. After meeting Polly, he squandered his father's efforts to establish him um, in a career that would have taken him to Jamaica. He couldn't bear the thought of living without her and twice frustrated his father's very generous, kind plans. To see. He would have been set for life and uh, he, he squandered those opportunities. He was drafted into the military. He deserted the military and was whipped with a, with a cat of nine tails, not unlike what Jesus would have received. Um, he was traded off of a military vessel onto a slave-keeping ship, and at one point was actually with a land-based slave trader. I'd never thought about that till I started researching this, but Englishmen didn't just drive their ships up the coast and grab slaves and truck them off to to the American colonies, but they had to set up, there were Englishmen who lived in Africa who gathered human cargo, and then it was placed on ships. It was a grisly business, and Newton hooked up with a land-based English slave trader on the coast of Africa. However, his African mistress took a severe, unexplainable hatred to Newton, and he, began, he said, I was treated so horribly that the slaves pitied me. So this woman just treated him uh, wickedly. And so Newton, you need to keep in mind, is not just a slave trader. He knows what it's like to be a slave himself. And so when he talks about being a wretch and when he talks about uh, his own involvement, he, he, he actually understands all sides of that involvement. So how did someone so wicked, so derelict, Uh, come to know Christ? Well, there are two things to keep in mind. One was, and if we can go back to slides now, thank you. Let's see. One was a terrific storm that happened off the coast of Newfoundland on March 21st. Uh, Newton is involved in this terrible storm, and a lot of biographies love to make this the moment where Newton comes to Christ, but Newton is very clear later in life when he says, that while his conscience was awakened by this life-threatening storm, this was the beginning of the Lord's work in his heart. He said, by no means did I become a believer that night. So modern biographies like the charm of a terrible storm, but the truth is he he did cry out to God. He assumed he was a hopeless case, and while they eventually did land on the coast of Ireland, uh, he did go to church, and what it became was just one more of these hills and valleys where he upped his religious intensity, but still didn't come to Christ. So the storm had the effect of awakening his conscience again, but in the, in the months that followed this tremendous storm, that's a pretty well-known part of most Newton biographies, uh, in the months that followed, he said he plunged into the, the darkest, most wicked chapter of his whole life. Listen to how Newton describes those days. He says of himself, I not only sinned with a high hand myself, but I made it my study to tempt and seduce others on every occasion. Nay, I eagerly sought occasion, sometimes to my own hazard and hurt. I was a willing slave of every evil. I was possessed with a legion of unclean spirits. My whole life, when awake, was a course of most horrid impiety and profaneness. I know not that I have ever since met so daring a blasphemer as myself. I was not content with common oaths and imprecations. I daily invented new ones. 
so that I was often seriously reproved by the captain who was himself a passionate man and by no means circumspect in his expressions. In other words, I had such a foul mouth that even foul-mouthed sailors rebuffed me. In a word, I seemed to have every mark of final impenitence and rejection. Neither judgments nor mercies made the least impression on me. So how did someone who has their conscience awakened by a terrible storm and then plunges into that kind of wickedness, how do they come to faith in Christ? The way it happened was that Newton, about a year after that terrible storm, was on this island. This is an island off, off the, uh, the, the bulge of Africa. Um, and it's there that he contracted malaria and was just about, was certain that he was going to die. At this point, the Lord really does open Newton's eyes to the danger of his condition, and Newton says this. He says, while I was on that island, listen to how he describes it. Weak and almost delirious, I arose from my bed and crept to a retired place. And here, here I found renewed liberty to pray. I durst make no more resolves. This is, the, this is the spiritual crystallizing moment. I durst make no more resolves. In our American English, that means I'm going to quit making promises to God. You see, in every one of these height, religious fervor, he would promise God, I'll do better. I'll never sin like that again. I'll do better. And Newton is, in essence, over and over again trying to save himself with his own effort. Now he finally says this, I durst make no more resolves, no more promises about being better and doing better, but cast myself before the Lord to do with me as he should please. I do not remember any particular text or remarkable discovery that was presented to my mind, but I was enabled to hope and believe in a crucified Savior. This is the moment that Newton comes to faith in Christ, when he stops self-atoning, stops self-saving, and says, Lord, I'm not making any more promises to you, but I cast myself on the promises that you have made about how sinners are made right with you. Years later, Newton would capture this, uh, this struggle in a, in a hymn called uh, Rebel Made a Son. So uh, listen to these, these words written much later to describe this period in his life. By blood I live to tell what the love of Christ has done. He redeemed my soul from hell, of this rebel made a son. Oh, I tremble still to think of how secure I lived in sin. Dancing on destruction's brink, yet preserved from falling in. Dancing on destruction's brink, yet preserved from falling in. In his own appointed hour, to my heart the Savior spoke. Touched me by his Spirit's power, and my dangerous slumber broke. Then I saw and owned my guilt, and soon my gracious Lord replied, Fear not, I my blood have shed, was for such as you I died. Fear not, I my blood have shed, was for such as you I died. Shame and wonder, joy and love, all at once possess my heart. Can I hope your grace to prove, Lord, after acting such a part? You have greatly sinned, he said. 
But I freely all forgive. I myself the debt have paid. I now bid thee rise and live. I myself the debt have paid. I now bid thee rise and live. Rise and live. Come, my fellow sinners, try. Jesus' heart is full of love. Oh, that you as well as I may his wondrous mercy prove. He has sent me to declare that all is ready, all is free. Why should any soul despair when God saved a wretch like me? Why should any soul despair when God saved a wretch like me? Well, soon after his conversion, Newton made his way back to Polly, his, uh, what shall we say, not high school sweetheart, his teenage heartthrob, and discovered that his father was no longer in England, he'd gone to Canada, but that his father had stopped at the Catlett's home to say, don't know where my son is, lost at sea, don't know if he's dead or alive, but if he ever shows up back here, I know of his love, I mean, twice he spurned my offers to send him to Jamaica, I know of his love for your daughter, and if you are interested, he has my permission and my blessing to marry. And so with his father away in Canada, by the way, they would never meet again. Uh, his father drowned while he was in Canada, and uh, as far as I know, drowned, drowned without any knowledge of his son's safety. So he, he makes his way back to the Catlett family, uh, helps her father understand that he's come to genuine faith in Christ, and, uh, and the two of them are married. Uh, in a very short period of time after that, Newton, um, his involvement in slave trade as a young believer was a very, very short chapter in his life, and he was about to go on his third journey as a, as a, as a believing slave trader when he had a seizure the night before he was supposed to leave. He'd never had a seizure before, would never have another seizure as long as he lives. So he says, while my conscience was not yet awakened as to the wickedness of what was going on in slave trade, he said, I, I felt like a jailer. I hated it. I thought it was my cross to bear. He said, I was blinded by cultural acceptance of a wicked practice. And so he said, I can assure you that my heart was so tender toward the Lord. Had I had any clue that what I was doing was wrong, I would have fled and abandoned it immediately. So the Lord plucks him out, strikes him with a seizure, and now tens of thousands of pounds being invested on a transatlantic journey. They're going, we can't send you off in this condition. And, and that's how the Lord got Newton out of slave trade, even before his eyes were opened spiritually to see what a problem it was. So he's married to Polly. He has the opportunity in his new position as the tide surveyor in Liverpool to hear Whitfield and the Wesleys preach and Within about a four-year period after his conversion, he's beginning to preach in what they call salon preaching, which is preaching in living rooms, and he, he believes that he wants to give his life to ministry. It would be seven long, frustrating years while the Church of England held him at bay. You see, this is a time period in church history where pastoral ministry is something you inherited from your great-great-grandfather, your grandfather, and your father. Uh, it, it wasn't. Uh, this is a, this is a period of dereliction in pastoral duties. So, if you've seen Austen type novels where the the vicar of the church spends most of his life having tea in the richest person in his congregation's house, that's actually pretty accurate. Uh, that that's what was going on. And but so here's a guy with a passionate heart for Christ who actually wants to be what the New Testament says a pastor should be. 
And the Church of England is embarrassed of his wicked past. They're embarrassed of his lack of uh, education. And uh, so it takes him a while and finally finds someone to sponsor him. And they sent him to what I assume they thought would be uh, a place where he could do very little harm. So they sent him to uh, the village of Olney. This is Olney as it looks today. That's the River Ouse. Olney is just about 15 minutes, by the way, from, from the town of Bedford, which is also on the Ouse River. Uh, and that's where, of course, John Bunyan was there and was imprisoned and wrote, amongst other things, uh, Pilgrim's Progress. And So I don't know what's in the water of the River Ouse, but I've drunk some of it hoping that it would rub off because it produced John Bunyan and John Newton, and that's enough for me. So, so he arrives in this village, and as I mentioned this morning, um, in this small village, what he discovers is that... Uh, through the actually the influence of some some Protestant the Huguenots who came over from France who were being persecuted, they brought this lace making to the village of Olney. Lace making is something you do at home. It's not done in a factory. It's a cottage industry, and and this is how Newton got the idea of writing hymns. He would walk the streets of the little village of Olney, and he would hear people inside their homes making lace like this, which was incredibly intricate work, but apparently after a while you get a pattern going and you don't have to think about it as much. And so they, they had these little chants that they said to one another, kind of like we did in my junior high and high school ministry on long trips. We'd say 99 bottles of root beer on the wall, 98 bottles of root beer on the wall. They, had the, they were called tells. So Newton didn't set out to be a hymn writer. He set out to write tells. He called them that because you'd tell them to each other to pass the time. He set out to write tells to help his congregation learn truth because they could, they could tell tells all day long. And so he was anxious to have the opportunity to just say, you know what, let, let me get something worth repeating in their minds. What's staggering to me as a pastor now, however, is that at times he would introduce a tell on a Tuesday night at a prayer meeting, or sometimes a Tuesday morning, in, in advance of a sermon that he would preach the following Sunday. So can you imagine being far enough along in your sermon prep by Tuesday that you could write a poem about what you're getting ready to preach. Uh, the boy genius continued on. And so uh, that, that's, that's how Newton came. Here's his faithful pastor in the village of Olney. This is, again, his church as it stands today. I have I had the opportunity to spend some time in that building. I recorded Amazing Grace in their a cappella. Um, I got interrupted by the belfry swinging 2 o'clock or 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and I just was quiet and just let it record. I confess, I cut it out of the song and put it at the end of the song on the, on the, but it is there. If you turn up at the very end of Amazing Grace, turn it up real loud, you'll hear the, you can hear the bells going. And um, so a, a beautiful congregation, he began preaching there and uh, they had to build, we would call it a balcony, they called it a gallery and just uh, an amazing gospel ministry. Dozens and dozens and dozens of these illiterate lace makers and liquor makers uh, coming to know Christ. Also, uh, there's the inside of the church. Just to the far left, you can see there, um, that's not his actual pulpit. His actual pulpit is still in the building. As I stand taking this picture, it's uh, over my right shoulder behind me. I've stood in it. I've caressed it. And... <laughs> Here's a picture of his home. It uh, was a vicarage then, and it's now a private home. It's for sale right now for uh, two million pounds. That'd be about four million dollars. So if any of you have that, I would love to buy it and turn it into a museum, and, uh, or live there, either one, that would be okay. So um, the, let's see, on the third floor of, of this home is the study where he wrote all the hymns that you're hearing tonight, and uh, I've got to go in there, and let's see, I think, 
Uh, I have a picture of it. I'll show you later. It's coming. Uh, the other important thing that happens while he's here in this home is that he and his wife adopt uh, a, a niece. Her, her name is Betsy, and Betsy comes to live with John and Polly when she's five years old. Her parents were killed in a house fire. Actually, her mother was killed in a house fire, and it wasn't considered appropriate in those days for a father to raise a girl alone, and so uh, they adopted her. She was as dear to them as, as any daughter. There are extant about a dozen letters uh, that he wrote to her while she was at boarding school. There is no good school in Olney. That's why everyone's illiterate. So sent her to a boarding school so she could get an education. And the tenderest letters that he writes to her while she's away at school, and um, just, just very, very sweet. O- often adoptive parents have found these letters meaningful just because it's insight into how another adopted father uh, dealt with a, a five-year-old as he adopted her. Also, William Cooper came and bought a house right behind uh, the Newton's Vicarage where they're living. William Cooper uh, was sort of an unpaid assistant. He moved to Olney to sit under the preaching ministry of John Newton. You may be familiar that uh, he was a very fragile man who attempted many times to take his life. Uh, this chapter of life where he ministered alongside of Newton was the happiest chapter of his life. And uh, The whole concept of writing a hymnal, by the way, there exists today, you can get copies of what's called the Olney Hymnal, named after this little village of Olney. The Olney Hymnal, the the concept was Newton's way of saying, let's help this fragile-minded man who loves the Lord and is prone to getting absorbed in his self and his sadness and melancholy. He said uh, hymn writing would be a great task for him. William Cooper was a published poet and a popular author. This is a picture of uh, Cooper's home, which is actually now a museum dedicated to Cooper and Newton today. And this is a little, what's called a summer house between Newton's home and Cooper's home. There's just room inside that little house for two men to sit on a bench, sort of knee to knee. And uh, the, the concept is it's the air-conditioned room of the day. It has thick stone walls, so even when it was hot outside, it would be a little bit cooler in there than it would be outside. And the two of them would sit in there and smoke their pipes and talk theology, and uh, needless to say, I've sat on that bench too. So, so here's a, a, a copy of the, uh, the title page from the Olney Hymnal. Everything you're hearing tonight comes out of the Olney Hymnal. My wife insisted when we were in England uh, before the Newton Odyssey began that, um, that I buy this, uh, the most important souvenir I've ever bought, which was a copy of this facsimile uh, hymnal, a facsimile copy of the original. And uh, the, the more I explored, the more I just thought, there are so many hymns in here that are more profound than Amazing Grace. Uh, it sort of staggered my mind how that one got to be so well known. Sadly, Cooper would only contribute between 20 and 30 hymns in this hymnal. It really became largely a Newton project, and uh, that was a sadness to Newton. Here's a picture of the study. I was actually there breathing the air, hoping it would rub off on me, and... Uh, I sort of did what Simeon, Lord, now let thy servant depart in peace. I've stood in Newton's study. <laughs> Here's the view out his study window. You can see there's, there's the church. And so I, I want you to picture with me that um, this next song, John was getting ready to preach from John chapter 21, the, the scene in, at the end of John's gospel where the Lord is asking, the resurrected Jesus is asking, Peter, do you love me three times? And so he's getting ready to preach out of John 21, and and he says to himself clearly through this lyric, before I preach to my congregation and ask them if they love the Lord, I I just have to ask myself, do I love the Lord? And so listen to his reflection on John chapter 21. So I just sort of picture him sitting at his desk with a quill in his hand, 
staring out at that steeple and thinking, I love my people, and uh, sometimes I wonder how much I love the Lord. So um, this would be an example of just this tremendous, unique transparency. Of, uh, there's just a unique level of self-disclosure in this lyric that's just not typical of him writing at the time. Tis a point I long to know And oft it causes anxious thought Do I love the Lord or no? Am I His or am I not? If I love, why am I thus? Why this dull and lifeless frame? Surely they cannot be worse Who have never heard his name Could my heart so hard remain? Prayer a task and a burden prove Every trifle give me pain if I knew a Savior's love, when I turn my eyes within, all is dark and vain and wild, filled with unbelief and sin. Can I deem myself a child? If I pray or hear or read, sin is mixed with all I do. You that love the Lord indeed, tell me, is it thus with you? And yet I mourn my stubborn will. And I find my sin a grief and a thrall. Would I grieve for what I feel if I did not love the Lord at all? Could I joy His saints to me would I choose the ways I once abhorred? Find at times God's promise sweet If I did not love the Lord So Lord, decide my doubtful case You who are your people's son Shine upon your work of grace If indeed it is begun So let me love you more and more If I love it all I pray And if I have not loved before Help me to begin today. If I have not loved before, then help me to 
can see why if a pastor is going to be that open and transparent. Can you imagine? Hey, I want to teach you a new song I wrote this week. It's about how I struggle as your pastor with assurance of my own salvation. It, was just, it would have been comforting and disarming, and indeed it was. This next hymn is actually a Christmas song that he wrote. It doesn't talk about shepherds. It doesn't talk about magi or uh, mangers, but what it does talk about is the angelic message. And uh, what Newton's emphasis on this is this hymn has really helped me because I've been teaching on worship and interested in music for all of my Christian life, and uh, I've certainly always thought of the angelic scenes of worship in Revelation 4, Revelation 5, and Isaiah 6 as exemplary worship to be imitated in its intensity and its content, but Newton points out here that angels can say in Revelation, worthy is the lamb that was slain, period, objectively, he is worthy because he was slain for sinners, But no angel can say what we can say, and that is, he was slain for my sin. Wow. So Newton says this basically in this song. It's a Christmas song, gave to his congregation and said, no angel is ever going to outstrip my praise because I have more to praise God about than any angel ever did. Now let us join and tongues and emulate the angel songs we sinners may address our king in songs the angels cannot sing they praise the lamb who once was slain but we can add a higher strain not only say he suffered thus but that he suffered it all for us. When angels by transgressions fell, justice confined them all to hell. But mercy formed a wondrous plan to save and honor fallen man. Jesus, who passed all those angels by, he assumed our flesh to bleed and to die, and still he makes it his abode, as man he fills the throne of God. Our next of kin, our brother now, is he to whom those angels bow. They join with us to praise his name, but we the nearest interest claim. But oh, how faint our praises rise. Sure tis the wonder of the skies that we who share his richest love So cold and unconcerned 
should prove. When the Lord was crucified, two transgressors with him died, one with vile blaspheming tongue, scoffed at Jesus as he hung. Thus he spent his wicked breath in the very jaws of death, perished as too many do. With the Savior right there in view For sovereign grace has power alone To subdue all hearts of stone And the moment grace is felt Well then the hardest of hearts will melt for sovereign grace has power alone to subdue all hearts of stone. The other thief was touched with grace and saw the danger of his case. Faith received to own his Lord whom the scribes and priests abhorred. Lord, he prayed, remember me when in glory you shall be. Soon with me, the Lord replied, you shall rest in paradise. For sovereign grace has power to subdue all hearts of stone and the moment grace is felt well then the hardest of hearts will melt for sovereign grace has power alone to subdue all hearts of stone This was wondrous grace indeed, promised grace in time of need. Sinners, trust in Jesus' name, you will find him still the same. But beware of unbelief, think upon that hardened thief, if the gospel you disdain. 
Christ to you will die in vain. For sovereign grace has power alone to subdue all hearts of stone. And the moment grace is felt, well, then the hardest of hearts will melt. For sovereign grace has power alone to subdue. Yes, the moment God's grace is felt, then the hardest of hearts will melt. For sovereign grace has power alone to subdue. All hearts of stone. Well, now we find Newton as a reluctant celebrity in London. It was hard for them in many ways to leave only in the kind of peaceful village, idyllic life they lived there. This is now moving to the city of London where he was asked to pastor the church of St. Mary Woolnough. Um, on, the, on your left, you see a picture of the church as it was at the time that Newton was there, and on the right, the church as it stands today. We're very fortunate that this is one of the few churches that wasn't destroyed during the Blitzkrieg during World War II. And if you're ever in London and want to find this church, uh, get on the tube and go to the Bank Street exit. And if you come out there and get the Bank of England at your back, then you'll be staring right at this. And uh, so that church is there. Um, had the privilege again of, <clears throat> I haven't even mentioned the, first of all, who knew that if you have a curiosity, it could become a hobby, and a hobby could become an obsession, and an obsession could become a book, a CD, and a tour. And so I have the I have wonderful privilege of taking our, our, our choir and orchestra of 75, two big bus loads on an 11-day tour, and we did concerts at his church in Olney and, and closed our time at a concert at, at this church here in London. So a completely different kind of ministry here, no longer the illiterate and the poor. This is the hoi polloi of London. These are parliamentarians, and the mayor of London heard Newton preach, and uh, so a completely different ministry. That also you need to keep in mind this is not the this is not the London of the Victorian era. This is not Dickens London. This is uh, this is considerably prior to that. As a matter of fact, the night Newton dies is the first night that the first street in London was lit by gas lamps. So that helps you figure out where you are in history. You're, you're sort of pre-Victorian era. So this is refuse in the street, um, fecal material in the street. This is a filthy, muddy. Um, nice buildings, but really tough living conditions. I'm sure there were times they missed, um, missed life in, in the peaceful village of Olney, but they believed this is what the Lord would have for them, and they had a rich pastoral ministry here. At this point, he is considered a, a seasoned minister, and uh, by now his autobiography has been published, his hymns have been published, his letters are being published. Uh, people would write him spiritual counseling questions, and he would answer in profound ways. People were gathering up the letters and circulating them and publishing them without his approval, so he finally decided he would begin publishing his own letters. So this is uh, Newton as the reluctant celebrity. He's not the recluse you see in the movie, afraid to go out. He is, uh, 
he's, uh, he's a, a, a degree of notoriety that I mentioned he was never completely comfortable with. This is the inside of the church. Um, on your left, you're looking from the, the doors as you enter, straight forward. I don't know how well you can see it. Um, it there's a Ten Commandments are on the wall there. It almost when you walk in, it almost strikes you as, um, as a Jewish place of worship, but it was indeed a, an, an Anglican church. On the right, you'll see Newton's pulpit. It, it fully surrounded him. One side of the pulpit furthest away from the congregation was hinged, and uh, there are two steps you walk up, and I've uh, stood in the pulpit there and imagined what it must have been like. So, um, so reaching a completely different clientele, mentoring young pastors. Uh, one of Newton's great-hearted efforts was in, in training young pastors. He didn't just train guys who were going into ministry in the Church of England. He would train what were called nonconformists, uh, uh, Baptists and Presbyterians and independents. And um, they were all welcome in his home one day a week. He would lead uh, his family and his uh, paid servants in family worship. And one day a week at breakfast, any man who wanted to was invited to join him for breakfast. And he would do family worship, dismiss the family and the servants, and then uh, it was open Q&A. So the opportunity for young men to ask an older seasoned pastor. And one guy writes in a letter, he says, I can still see dear Mr. Newton in his velvet robe and his damask cap. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, he's dressed like Scrooge when he goes to bed. Ah, and his little velvet slippers, so... Um, so just a warm-hearted, warm-hearted man with a mission societies are begun. Uh, he's, he's influencing parliamentarians in particular. He is significant in the conversion of William, William Wilberforce, the youngest parliamentarian in England's history. Wilberforce was, uh, a partying bachelor and he came to hear Newton preach and was convicted, left a note on the vestry door in the church and said, um, I need to see you, but <clears throat> I am a man of some notoriety, and I must, uh, you must promise me uh, uh, anonymity. And so he invited, uh, Newton invited William Force to, Wilberforce to come to his home, and uh, there after meeting with him several times, uh, Wilberforce was converted to Christ and was considering leaving politics and going into ministry, and it was Newton who persuaded him to stay in politics for one sole purpose, and that was to, to abolish slavery. And so they partnered together. You may be aware that Newton wrote a pamphlet that was placed in the hands of every parliamentarian called Thoughts on African Slave Trade. He was the first insider to ever go public on the grisly business that no one in England knew about or really wanted to know about. And uh, so that was placed in, it was a highly influential document. And so Newton, who for a short time had been involved in slave trade, and for a short time as a believer didn't see the evil of it. Now, as a, a man who's grown in his Christian life, clearly saw the evil of it, and, and through Wilberforce, uh, was so pleased to see uh, the abolition of the slave trade in England. Two great trials also involve uh, this chapter of Newton's ministry. One was the death of his dear wife, Polly, by the way, if you read the biographies of, say, the Wesleys, and I'm not death on the Wesleys at all, Newton and the Wesleys were friends, Newton was a pallbearer at John Wesley's funeral, um, but the Wesleys don't have happy marriages, George Whitfield doesn't have a happy marriage, uh, the, the only guy who is just sort of solid in every arena, his theology is solid, his married life, his, his life as a dad is, is, is John Newton, it's part of the reason I'm so attracted to him. Uh, one of the lesser-known lights in the constellation of the evangelical revival in the 17th century, but, but the man who just seemed to me to be the most balanced. And uh, the death of his wife was a crushing blow for him. 
And uh, he, uh, I, I quote in, at the end of the book, if, if, if this is uh, meaningful to you, he wrote a poem um, <clears throat> on the anniversary of her death for five years after she dies. And so you get this beautiful progression of what grief looks like and how the Lord heals grief. Can I just read to you a part of year one and then a part of year five, the poem? Um, she had breast cancer and was dying at home. And in the last month of her life, really went through this one dark period where she really began to doubt her own salvation. And uh, he ministered to her and tried to encourage her. And, uh, and she had kind of come out of that stage, which is apparently not altogether unheard of, if you'll read church history, that in going through the valley of the shadow of death, the heart trembles sometimes. And so uh, she'd gotten to a place, she'd kind of gotten over that dark doubting period, but now had lost enough physical stamina, she could no longer speak. And he was getting ready to go preach on a Sunday night, and he said to his wife, I can't preach with any joy or peace unless you, I I just need to hear you say again, let let me know that you're okay. And he says, I know you can't speak, can you give me some kind of a gesture? And this is how he captures it in a poem. She dropped a tear and grasped my hand, and fain she would have spoke, but well my heart could understand the language of her look. Farewell it meant, a last adieu. I soon shall cease from pain. This silent tear I drop for you, we part to meet again. I said, if leaving all below, you now have peace divine and would but cannot tell me so, give me at least a sign. She raised and gently waved her hand and filled me with a joy to which the wealth of sea and land compared would be a toy. Then a few weeks later, he writes this, fainter and fainter, her breath grew until she breathed her last. The soul was gone before we knew the stroke of death had passed. Soft was the moment and serene that all her sufferings closed. No agony or struggle seen, no feature discomposed. The parting struggle all was mine. Listen to this line, tis the survivor who dies. If you've lost someone you love, you know what a true statement that is. The parting struggle all was mine, tis the survivor who dies. For she was freed and gone to join the triumph of the skies. Now thou hast made a void within which only thou can fill. Five years later, he writes this. The Lord has healed the wound he made and caused my grief to end. My part is only to believe, to submit, and be content. Content. The word's too faint to use. I should, I do rejoice. Now, as on rising ground I stand, reviewing what has passed, I see that love and wisdom plan my days from first to last. Then let me change my size to praise for all that he has done and yield my few remaining days to him and him alone. I hope to join her soon again on yonder happy shore where neither sorrow, sin, nor pain shall ever reach us more. So Newton feared his entire Christian life that he idolatrized his wife, that perhaps he loved her more than he loved Christ. I have to be honest with you, Newton knows his heart in a way I didn't know his heart, but when I read his life, I say, may your tribe increase. I don't see idolatry, I see exemplary husbandly love in this man. um, He reserved one text, he was able to preach his own wife's funeral, And he reserved a text. He said, throughout my ministry, I will never preach from Habakkuk chapter 3. And he said, and if she should precede me in death, that's the text I'll preach on only one occasion, and that will be 
on, on the occasion of her death. And that's the text where Habakkuk says, if all prosperity fails, if there's no fruit on the vine and there's no flock in the field, I can still rejoice in my salvation. And so listen to Habakkuk chapter 3, the text that he preached at his wife's home going. Even if the fig tree should not blossom at its time, and if there be no fruit upon the vine, if the trees refuse to yield, if there's no harvest in the field, I can still rejoice. Even if the flocks should all be cut off from the fold, if every stall should stand there empty in the cold, if the trees refuse to yield, if there's no harvest in the field, I can still exult in the Lord. Even then I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. For the Lord God is my strength. He has made my footsteps sure. And he'll uphold me by his grace. And he will keep me safe on my high places. Even if the fig tree should not blossom at its time, And if there be no fruit upon the vine, if the trees refuse to yield, if there's no harvest in the field, I can still rejoice. Even if the flocks should all be cut off from the fold, If every stall should stand there empty in the cold, if the trees refuse to yield, if there's no harvest in the field, I can still exult in the Lord. Even then I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. For the Lord God is my strength. He has made my footsteps sure. And he'll uphold me by his grace. And he will keep me safe. Yes, he'll uphold me by his grace. And he will keep me safe. On my high places. Safe on my high places, safe on my high places.
You might be tempted to think that God takes it easy on His saints in the closing chapters of their life, but if you read your Bible carefully, you'll find that's not the case. And so while Newton is having the most intense and most fruitful period of ministry in his life, he's also suffering the greatest griefs of his life. Perhaps that's the way, Lord's way of keeping celebrity pastors like Newton humble and dependent. About 10 years after the death of his wife, while his adopted daughter Betsy is uh, continuing to care for her aging father, um, Betsy is seized by a sudden, what he called a nervous illness, and for a year was placed in this hospital called Bethlehem Hospital. In the Cockney language, Bethlehem became the word Bedlam Hospital. And that's where we get the word bedlam. This was an insane asylum. And his dear daughter goes and spends a year there, almost to the day, and comes out and is completely fine and never has another struggle of this magnitude again in her life. There's so many things going on medically in this period of time that are unknown to us. Consumption, which we call tuberculosis, was rampant because no one knew of the importance of keeping sterile the udders of a cow before you made dairy products. And... um, unscrupulous merchants would put lead in the tea. You'd say, I need eight ounces of tea, and they'd sell you four ounces of tea with four ounces of lead in it, not hoping to poison you, just hoping to cheat you, not knowing that, the, that, that lead would wreak havoc on your body. So who knows what she may have ingested or what caused this. This is a unique period of time in, in history where thousands of people are in these, in these kind of places. So Newton is absolutely heartbroken When his wife died, he published the letters they exchanged as newlyweds, and much to the chagrin of his friends who said this was inappropriate, he published them called Letters to a Wife at a time when letters to lovers were very popular, but not letters between married people. When that book was published, he asked his publisher, would you uh, make one copy for me in which between every page of the letters you insert a blank page, and I'm going to use that as the journal as I grieve the passing of my wife, and I've had the privilege of holding this journal in my hands. And in one of those entries, he talks about his heartache at his daughter Betsy being in this hospital. By the way, he went every day. He was almost blind by this point, and an escort would take him every day to the intersection just a few blocks from his home in London where he would stand at this intersection with this view of the hospital and would stand there until Betsy saw him and she would wave a handkerchief out one of the windows so she would know I see you, Papa, and I know that you've come to visit. And so it's, it's very touching. Listen to what Newton writes about this heartache. August 1st, 1801. I now enter my 77th year. I have been exercised this year with a trying and unexpected change. But it's by thy appointment, my gracious Lord, and thou art unchangeably wise and good and merciful. Thou gavest me my dear adopted child. Thou didst own my endeavors to bring her up for thee, and I have no doubt thou hast called her by thy grace, and I thank you you for the ten years' comfort I have had in her, ten years since his wife's death. The ten years' comfort I have had in her for the attention and affection she has always shown me, exceeding that of most daughters to their own parents. But thou hast tried me now, as thou didst try Abraham in my old age. When my eyes are failing and my strength declines, thou hast called for my Isaac, who has so long been my chief stay and staff, and it was thy blessing that made her so. A nervous disorder has seized her, and I desire to leave her under thy care and shall chiefly pray for myself that I may be enabled to wait thy time and will without betraying any signs of impatience or despondency, unbecoming my profession and character." 
Hitherto thou hast helped me, and to thee I look for help in the future. Let all issue to thy glory, that my friends and hearers may be encouraged by seeing how I am supported. Let thy strength be manifest in my weakness. Let thy grace be sufficient for me. And finally, dear Lord, let all work together for our good. Amen. I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace might more of His salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. It was he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered my prayer, but it has been in such a way has almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favored hour, all at once God would answer my request. And by His love's constraining Consume all my sins and give me rest. But instead of this, God made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry of hell assault my soul in every part yes more with his own hand he seemed content to aggravate my woe crossed all the fence that I'd schemed. God blasted my hope. God laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Will you pursue this worm to death. This is the way the Lord replied that I answer your prayers 
for grace and strength. These inward trials I now employ from self and pride to set you free and break all your schemes of earthly joys till you shall seek your all in me That's the first hymn that set me on wanting to know more about Newton. I'm indebted to someone who emailed me this lyric. I still don't know who, but I read it and got to the bottom and saw, John Newton wrote that? All I remember about Newton is he wrote Amazing Grace in my hymnology class and was a bad guy. And it's that lyric that I just thought, this man's been reading my spiritual diaries. It's just so, so precious on me. That's really what began the whole Newton odyssey. Before we sing Amazing Grace together, <clears throat> Newton died uh, with Betsy, by the way, made a full recovery, married Joseph Smith, Newton's son-in-law, who actually, uh, after his death, published what are now the six-volume standard complete works of John Newton. So she was at his bedside when he died, and uh, as he was aging, he was concerned, given his celebrity status, that more might be made of his death in, in, in regards to a physical memorial than he desired, and so he designed and wrote the epitaph that he wanted to be placed on, uh, in the church there. Uh, this is a picture of it as it hangs today, and I know you can't read it, so let me read it to you, and then we'll stand together and sing Amazing Grace. John Newton, clerk. <coughs> Excuse me. Once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. Near 16 years in Olney in Buckinghamshire and 28 years in this church. On February 1st, 1750, he married Mary, the daughter of the late George Catlett of Chatham, Kent. He resigned her to the Lord who gave her on December 15th. 1790. So who are the two people he mentions? What are the two great achievements? That he was saved by a glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. And the only other thing he wants to be remembered by is that he had the good sense to marry Mary. That doesn't sound like idolatry to me, does it to you? It just sounds like nice, husbandly love. The power of sin and unbelief is woven into this story. The power of a praying parent is woven into this story. The power of the gospel of grace to transform an infidel and a juvenile delinquent into a useful, faithful pastor. So moms, dads, grandparents, don't stop praying for those who seem wayward and far away. 
Let's stand and close together by singing Amazing Grace. You'll notice some verses that perhaps you haven't heard before, and you'll notice one verse that unfortunately may be your very favorite when we've been there 10,000 years isn't there because John Newton didn't write that verse. It was written by a 20th century, uh, 19 and less than 1910, somewhere in the early 1900s, a man named Edwin O. Excel, who was a publisher of hymnals in Chicago, uh, decided that Newton didn't get it quite right and needed, uh, needed that last verse. So, <clears throat> not that I have an attitude about that or anything, but <clears throat> so let's sing Amazing Grace as he wrote it. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Forbear to shine.
But God who called me here below will be forever mine. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.